Good afternoon and welcome to this week's edition of Navara, brought to you on Resonance FM. I'm James Butler and in the studio this week we'll be discussing Jeremy Corbyn, the Labour Party and what the realistic prospects are for the left under this leadership, embattled as it is, and what this situation says about the state of the left, the party and the state of social democracy and what future, if any, Corbynism has. I'm joined in the studio this week by Richard Seymour who has just published a book on Corbyn entitled Corbyn, The Strange Rebirth of Radical Politics and Rosie Warren, Editor-in-Chief of Salvage magazine and who also edited the book uh, and eventually we will be joined by uh, eminent resonant resonance Navara co-founder Aaron Bastani who is shuttling his way from a conference on populism um, so there's a lot to discuss about the book uh, which situates Corbyn in a history of the Labour Party and of British politics more generally and sort of aims to frustrate the wilder dreams of Corbynistas as well as those from right and left who want to dismiss them. And one wonders whether its subtitle ought to have a question mark appended, were that not some kind of tiresome cliché. But uh, the offers answered up are not simple ones, are they? Um, and I was, I was thinking of this when I was uh, listening earlier this week. I was eavesdropping on a reasonably eminent academic expert in public policy uh, who, who was uh, whinging about the, the Trump phenomenon. He was saying, you know, you know, this is democracy. And, you know, sometimes in democracy, you don't get what you want. And, and you have to accept that. And these people need to grow up. And then within sort of five minutes, <laughs> began to scheme on ways to get rid of Jeremy Corbyn. And the irony <laughs> was absolutely unapparent to them. But I suppose my question to start with is, is this. If this is the case, if these people, if they're sort of intellectual... Uh, eminence grise of the sort of centrist part of the party uh, already talking about a reversion to the mean by a coup attempt uh, is Corbyn just a flash in the pan or an aberration? Um, no and uh, reversion to the mean is such a great way to put it um, but um, is it a flash in the pan? No I don't think it is I think it's structural now Corbynism itself is incredibly fragile I mean everybody can see this and I did a meeting the other night talking to labour activists and uh, nobody's in any doubt about this that uh, it's uh, going to um, it's at great risk rather of falling apart um, sooner rather than later and at least by 2020 uh, if uh, Corbyn is unable to win the election by some uh, strange set of circumstances um, but nonetheless it remains a structural phenomenon. Why? Because uh, the conditions that made such a rapid surge possible are going to continue. The decline in voting, the decline in party identification, the decline in party membership. This is, these are all the factors that have been present uh, in British politics for a long time, but they've been increasing and they've reached a tipping point. And we already saw that in Scotland, of course, with the devastation of uh, really the heartline of the old Labour right. I mean, that's one of the reasons why they were not able to defeat Corbyn. Many other reasons, but um, pacification is, um, as it's called, is working its way uh, mercilessly um, at the base of the Labour Party. And Corbyn has been elected to address that problem from the left. The crisis of the Labour Party gave him the position that he's got. It may now be his biggest impediment. So... I mean, yeah, one of the reasons I ask this question is precisely because you locate in the book some of the, the, the engine of Corbynism as sort of located in this thesis that, that is partly derived from Peter Mayer, mm -hmm. his book uh, Ruling the Void, which is a you know, secular decline, uh, in, in the strength of parties and, and their retreat from, from their sort of electoral base. Um, I mean, I think also here there is a diminishing purchase of Blairism, isn't there? Yeah. 
Uh, I mean, the Blairites are finished. It's the old Labour right um, who are really going to lead the uh, offensive here. It's very interesting that Roy Hattersley, who was someone who saw himself as in the resistance against Blairism, albeit a rather ineffectual one, um, has been the, one, among the most truculent anti-Corbynistas, talking about reviving uh, the coalition of the 1980s. I think these people are deluded, uh, by the way. They will find their own way um, to uh, build an anti-Corbyn coalition, but it will come uh, organically from the situation, from the fact that Corbynism is very weak. But um, people like Tom Watson, um, who, you know, uh, keeps his powder dry and his knives whistle clean um, and his voice low and courteous, mm. he's not uh, the one out there shouting on the back benches, but I think people like him will be far more deadly than the Blairites or uh, the backbench belligerati. I mean, there, there are other factors here, aren't there? And, and it makes it difficult to think about how it could be repeated. Uh, one, of course, is the, the Collins Review and everything that followed from it. Right. One is the, the sheer weaknesses of the right's various candidates. Uh, I mean, they're <laughs> really I, uh, dreadful. And, and one, of the, one of the things that actually is most striking about the introduction to the book is, is precisely you point out how utterly hollow they looked. Yeah. Uh, in, in comparison, in comparison to Corbyn, and perhaps we can talk a little about personality as as we get through the show and the relation of personality to politics generally, and what what how how that works. Um, because sure, Corbynism is a structural phenomenon, and yeah. yet a lot of this seems attached to him very very personally as leader, and that raises big questions about consolidation yes. within the party. Um, but I mean that that situation doesn't seem likely to be repeated. Um, so I mean, perhaps one of the ways in here is to is to ask. Uh, uh, what what's the message you want to get to the sort of rather excitable Corbynites? Because, it, I mean, it, stru it struck me the other day that I... So, uh, I, I was talking on Twitter, which is always inadvisable, um, <laughs> about the Corbyn sort of team's media relations, and their yeah. media relations really aren't great. They're, they're, they're actually really bad at doing things like meeting print deadlines, uh, like very simple things that are just like the mechanics of operation in Westminster. Um, and someone replies to me and said, yes, but we don't need any of that. You know, Jeremy's appeal is that he's, you know, he, he doesn't give in to that and he's honest and, and he, he's authentic and he pierces through that. I think, well, yeah, sure. I think if you're the kind of nerd who'll talk to me on Twitter about politics, that's probably true for you. I don't think the millions of people who'll... So, so, so I mean... What do you want the Corbynites to take from the book? I mean, there's a real dilemma here. Um, he can't win on the terrain of news cycles, um, and yet they have to do it, and they have no choice. Um, he's got to do a number of things that are mutually uh, not exactly contradictory, but they're in some sort of tension. Um, so, for example, he's got to rebuild the grassroots. Okay, he's already made a start of that, but let's be clear about this. The majority of the grassroots activists that they've recruited are not actually grassroots activists. They're rel relatively passive members. Um, Second of all, they're not really um, uniformly left-wing at all, and we often make this assumption that they are red in tooth and claw. They're relatively politically open and indeterminate. Uh, so, you know, they would they could be made into socialists uh, by someone having an argument with them, but that's that's really not what's happening. So there is that. Um, but then. 
the things that you need to do to build up the grassroots and energize them and radicalize them are not the same thing as the type of thing you need to do to win a media argument to um, uh, snuff out um, uh, an emerging scandal like say the anti-semitism scandal or something like that um, and they're not the same things in turn that you need to do to whip the parliamentary party into line I mean incidentally one of the things I think we at Savage would like to see is a Malcolm Tucker of the left mm. um, Corbyn's been far too soft on these people talk about politics of kindness yes yeah I don't think you're alone in that at all <laughs> um, I would have said and I did say a year ago that it wasn't possible for a socialist to lead the Labour Party yeah. And evidently I was wrong about that. And does, uh, does Corbyn's success challenge those of us with long-standing criticisms of the Labour Party to rethink them? I mean, my, my thoughts on this are partly derived from, from Ralph Miliband, sort of some of the traditional communist critiques of the Labour Party as well, critiques of social democracy. And of course, some people mount sort of ethical, political outrage at the actions of Labour in government. So, so these, these criticisms are both structural and historical. And so uh, I throw a big question at, at you, Rosie. I mean, should we be rethinking? Well, I mean, we were just discussing this um, before the show. Um, there seems to be this kind of tendency um, among the left um, in particular that you can kind of either say the Labour Party has this awful history, it was never founded as a radical party, it was never really socialist in the first place, and therefore we should have nothing to do with it, we should be untainted and, you know, outside of the, you know, touching the state, yeah. touching the party. Or you can say, you know, Corbyn is completely doomed in his endeavour and, you know, despite that he has, you know, every good intention, you know, he's never going to get anywhere. And I think, you know, we have to ask, what is it that he's trying to do? This is not, this is not the Labour Party of last year, right? This is not a Labour Party with the same aims. Um, there is obviously the electoral question. There's obviously the question of whether he can win a general election, which is not an unimportant one. Um, but I don't think Corbyn himself would claim that that was his only or even primary aim in what he's doing. You know, his kind of travelling around the country and talking to these huge meeting halls um, all over the UK is, I think, partly an expression of his attempt to rejuvenate the left. And if the Labour Party can be used for those means rather than simply as an intra Labour Party question, then I think that's something worth getting behind, you know, despite all the problems with the Labour Party per se. Yeah, I mean, I think it's... Um, uh, the, pr the, the problem with the Labour Party is, is it really viable? I mean, it's too broad, arguably. Um, the tendencies represented in it have got really nothing in common with each other. The Blairites and certainly the old hard Labour right, you know, the cold warriors who are still fighting those battles, um, they've got nothing in common with the Corbynites. They've got nothing in common with the younger members who are not quite Corbynites but have been radicalised by climate camp and Occupy and all the rest of it. So there's radically different cultures, different political styles at work, different expectations, different considerations as to what constitutes social power. If you're a Blairite, your starting point is the classic Labourist uh, uh, point of departure, which is you win an election. That's how you have power. Um, and even if you have to give up most of your agenda, um, bar a few, you know, ameliorative reforms, um, that's still some form of power. Um, they even talk in terms of hegemony, sort of ripped off Gramscian language. Um, uh, but um, I think much of the base doesn't look at it in those terms. Um, and the question is, will they, 
ultimately end up deferring to the traditional Labour assumption that what matters is winning elections. And will they end up being chewed up inside the sort of bureaucratic apparatus trying to get nice people on the NEC? These are not unimportant things, but they're not the most important thing that's going on. In other words, there's a lot of different projects happening here and a lot of different objectives. And I think uh, ultimately it may be that the Labour Party is just not viable in its present format and has to split, much as the uh, European social democracies are split. Yeah, I mean, it's one section in the book that I think is actually really telling and it, it really struck me that there is something utterly missing, certainly in English politics, uh, which is a party to the left of Labour and that, that emerges mm. from the old the old sort of socialist parties or the, the old sort of uh, militant wing of Labour uh, that just isn't there and partly that's a legacy of, of the SDP split I think and partly that I think is probably just a consequence of function of our electoral system and it's, re it's been very very interesting to me recently that John McDonnell who's probably the most forward thinking of, of the, the Labour uh, the Labour core team mm. has come out actually in favour of proportional representation. Yeah. Real heresy for socialists from the Labour <laughs> Party. Um, but so I, I wonder. I mean, you make the point about the the base, those in momentum, uh, which are not all entirely the same thing. Mm. Um, and, uh, and that there is a sort of degree of passivity here. You know, people who actually. So the the big thing that that, that accompanied the election of Corbyn or, or the sort of. Um, appeal to the left was look we're going to make this and it was terribly in vogue at the time because Syriza hadn't you know completely screwed themselves yet and we're going to make this a, a party of the movements um, and we're going to you know really make Labour into a social yeah. movement and actually I think it probably looks like most people who join to vote for Jeremy Corbyn don't really want to be in a social movement they think social movement is probably a good thing but they're probably too busy they've got yeah. jobs they will turn out probably and vote to defend the left-wing leader, and I think that's really important. Mm -hmm. um, but so what's the scope for political action here if, if, if it's not going to become a party of the movements? I almost think a party of the movements is a contradiction in terms. A movement is one thing, a party is something else. Um, I think possibly there's also a sense that um, the idea of party activism has gone into such decline over the years. And there are good reasons for that. Parties can be terrible uh, institutions to be involved in, depressing, exhausting. They can turn an, an enthusiastic political commitment into a nightmare. Um, but um, uh, how else are you going to be organized? Well, some people uh, think that movements are something else that you do separately. Um, and some people just give up. Um, so um, what's the prospects for Corbyn to turn Labour into a party of the movements? I think not very high. Um, I think that what he can do is support social movements when they arise and uh, create a space for the movement-oriented left within Labour to support those uh, organisations. I mean, in the past, what used to happen is Labour activists would come out to the People's Assembly. And when I say Labour activists, what I mean is they're active on the left. They're not active in the Labour Party. They had their membership card, but they didn't participate in any of the process and they didn't vote. And they didn't tend to say they were members of the Labour Party. Yes. Now we've got a situation where they think probably they can be quite proud of that and they can advertise that and they can probably recruit on that basis. So should it happen that there are movements that emerge out of specific situations like housing or whatever, um, then Labour uh, may, a uh, Labour left may profit from that. My sense is that ultimately, um, you know, in periods of uh, relative lack of movement and defeat and all the rest of it, that the right will find a way to regain the initiative and shut those things down. 
to move, maybe it's a, a question, I think, perhaps more for Rosie. I mean, one of the things that struck me when, when reading the first two issues of, of Salvage is the, the, the sense of sort of attempting to come with sober senses um, to, to uh, a recognition of where the left is at um, and, and perhaps discard some of the more sort of uh, adrenal optimism that, that underlies sort of activist, activist movements. Um, but is this a time for optimism? Well, obviously this is something that we've had to discuss relentlessly since declaring ourselves for pessimism, um, <laughs> because that has been largely misread as being for cynicism, which is, of course, not the same thing. Um, the thing about pessimism and the kind of pessimism that we're trying to kind of promote or at least argue for is that it's not about there being no moments of, of joy or moments of success. It's precisely that you can then recognize them as actual moments of success rather than as something that you had predicted from the very beginning because you had this kind of triumphalist nostrum of, you know, as always being on the up of everything being right around the corner, that if you're, if you're ready for failure and then something good happens, you can really seize on that and, you know, work out how you did that and repeat it. Um, where if, if you go into every situation assuming that you're going to win, you disorientate every activist who believed you and you know, and who was hoping for a success when you don't, and you have no explanation for it because you've, you know, you've completely set yourselves up for failure. Um, so I don't know that this is a moment for optimism in that sense, but certainly Corbynism and Sandersism and Podemos and, you know, where these mm. things are happening elsewhere, they're certainly kind of chinks of, of a, a good occurrence, if you like. Um, but I don't think we're under any illusions about what chances they have for, you know, real and lasting success if we approach them as if they're, you know, inevitable, this is what we are waiting for and everything's going to be plain sailing from here. If you, you know, if you yeah, approach right. every I mean, situation... Yeah, I that thing we've been predicting since the 70s has finally happened right, and, uh, right. and we're on the up. Yeah, so yeah. If, if you approach it that this is, you know, a real surprise, which it is, mm. and everybody has to admit that nobody, including Corbyn, ex expected this to happen, um, then you can you can really assess what's going on here. And I think successfully that's what what Richard's book tries to do is how did how did the Labour Party get into a state where Corbyn could come to power and what are the limits to what he can do with that and how do we we those who aren't in the Labour Party relate to that and, and help him and or the movement. Yeah, I mean one of the things that the book does very successfully is is chart exactly these struggles between right and left in the Labour Party and actually demonstrate quite how how weak the left and certainly the socialist left has been within Labour really from its foundation onward. Mm. How far do those sort of genetics of the Labour Party play into the scope for transformation? And uh, does the party's weakness suggest that that actually that that's going to be a hard limit? Well, I don't want to claim that the Labour Party of today is the same as the Labour Party of 1900. It's been through various transformations and changes. But the transformations that have taken place have tended to consolidate um, the power of a sort of increasingly managerial political professional class, a group of people who are not elected but who organise the party uh, in terms of uh, we've got to suppress such and such an occurrence because it will be bad for the media. Uh, we've got to make uh, our candidates dress up in a particular way. It used to be the case that um, uh, if you were coming in from the NUS, which of course is the career ladder for young aspiring Labour politicians, if you were coming in from there, they would say, uh, we need you to live clean, family values, don't do dope, don't drink, you know, all this sort of stuff. 
Um, serious, real, real story. Um, and um, basically, um, that has uh, necessarily left um, what we have called the, the sort of hollowed out uh, architecture of the Labour Party. Um, so... Nonetheless, there are some enduring features of Labourism. The fact that it is basically um, a coalition of middle-class liberals, the trade union bureaucracy, and at the base, um, there's always been a certain element of socialist radicalism. But people who've been frozen out from power, they're necessary to mobilise people to vote and take part in processes, but they've been frozen out from power throughout the whole time. This is the first time that radical socialists have ever got anywhere near the top of the Labour Party. Um, does that open up possibilities? Well, yeah, um, but it opens up possibilities uh, in, the, in the sense that it's because the uh, right is weak. It's because the Blairites are totally innovated and exhausted. Uh, the old Labour right is sort of uh, all over the place. They haven't got their, um, uh, their business together at the moment. Um, and the soft left, incidentally... While in the 80s they would have been on side against the hard left, they've tended to align behind Corbyn. They kind of support what he's doing. Uh, one of the interesting reasons for this is that Corbyn is actually steering toward the centre of the party. He's conceded on uh, Europe, he's conceded on NATO, he's conceded on nationalisations. He's willing to make concessions in order to hold the parliamentary party together. Mm -hmm. So... I mean, that process in itself may come back and turn out to be a, a, a serious limitation on what it can do in itself. I mean, it, it seems that, that this movement on Corbyn's part is actually something that is also visible among the those who've joined the party or certainly those who are, are politically interested and who come from sort of, and I'm thinking of young people here especially, who come from that sort of climate camp or Occupy and yeah. the student movement, who are who are thinking about, you know, what it means to compromise and what it means, you know, I mean, I, I go I go back and forth on this. There's there's something, I think, that, that is there is a strong argument here about, you know, okay, so there is, the left in Britain is weak anyway, the activist left in particular. Um, you know, we do things like turn out to eviction resistances sometimes, but we're not there three days later when the bailiffs turn up again. Uh, we tend to parachute in political specialists to take action, really, rather than organising um, communities themselves, organising where we live. Partly that's a consequence of atomization. partly it's a consequence, certainly in London, of rent prices, that no one is in the same place for too long. Um, so people are looking at this and thinking, well, here's a way of being able to make decisions on a national level that actually could avoid having to, having to turn out in the first place, uh, having to, to exhaust oneself through the kind of, you know, relentlessly almost apolitical activism in that it doesn't, it doesn't want to enter into a, kind of, a, a political choice in the sense that it doesn't want to take power, it wants to... Uh, constitute itself as a counterpower through activism, wants to do that kind of thing, uh, is extremely sceptical of parliamentary politics. It seems to me that there's, a, there's been a, almost a sea change for, for a lot of these people who come out of the activist movements. I wonder sometimes whether it goes too far, whether they're too yeah. willing to make compromises in, in that sense, whether they're too willing to give up things that are actually quite, quite essential. Conflict over Trident is maybe one of the, the interesting ones here. Um, so, I mean, I've talked a bit, bit about the, the Corbynite base there, but, but who are they? Why have they taken this trajectory? Um, okay, well, you can talk about two basic blocks here. First of all, you've got the uh, generation of uh, 80s activists um, who were aligned with militant or with the Benites. 
um, and they have been through a lot. They've weathered all the traumas, the storm, and they bedded down. They hunkered down and they kept quiet. Um, you know, they lost all the battles, um, and they still bear with them that particular cultural style. Um, political style, which um, is actually one of their weaknesses. It's one of the reasons why they lost support um, from one of the reasons why the soft left turned against them and uh, aligned ultimately with the Blairites. Um, it's one of the reasons why uh, younger members who were joining the Labour Party at that time were quite attracted to the idea of New Labour because New Labour at one time was uh, pitching itself as an attractive, modernising, democratising thing. Uh, it Nobody would have predicted that uh, by the time of the 2015 leadership election they, were, they would be calling for the elections to be cancelled. Um, but nonetheless, the point is that um, that's um, that's that sort of kernel of it, um, and those we probably those of us outside the Labour Party underestimated the resilience of those networks, um, not least because they kept so damn quiet. Um, then you know you've got um, a number of uh, sort of layers of uh, people, and this is happening across most of the advanced industrial economies. Uh, it's happening in Latin America. It's happening in North America. It's happening in Europe, and so it's happened in the United Kingdom. Uh, uh, generations of younger people who were already inclined toward a kind of social liberalism, you know, for gay rights, you know, for um, uh, abolishing the patriarchy and all the rest of it, um, and then um, the, there's the credit crunch. Um, and the ensuing period of austerity, and particularly the changes to higher education, and the fact that the old meritocratic fable that you know if you just work hard you're going to succeed, and so on and so on, that's take, cut, taken out from underneath them, um, and I think they've been radicalised uh, since that period of time. Um, and then, of course, you know you can talk about a certain process, a germinal uh, rebirth of certain kinds of radical ideas from the anti-capitalist movement onwards. Um, and, um, you know, this is uh, culminating in a series of populist movements. I would hesitate to call Corbynism populism. It's not quite the same thing. But a series of populist movements like Podemos, Sanders, and so on. Um, so that's the uh, base of it. Um, whether they are conceding too much, um, I think that's... Um, and yes, I think you're absolutely right that they are deferring uh, rather too much to the idea that somebody can do it for them. But um, it's exactly what you said. There's um, a problem that there's no habit of activism. There's no habit of repeating the same things over and over again. It's not ingrained into people's day-to-day -day experiences. You know, Tocqueville talked about the idea of associationalism uh, as a means of counterbalancing um, the tyranny of the state or the tyranny of majorities and so on and so on. We could learn a little bit from that in as much as neoliberalism has tended to decimate communities, decimate uh, uh, links of solidarity. Um, how do we, over a period of time, reconstruct some form of regularized, routinized, habit-based kind of activism that is not dependent on a leader, not dependent on necessarily a party structure, and not dependent on parliament or the media. Mm -hmm. Perhaps also not dependent on a sort of permanent self-sacrifice. The, the, <laughs> I mean, it's the, the dark side of political activism. Totally. I think. And it's one of the things, I think, that, that has compelled people into... into uh, political association is precisely yeah. that they no longer want to bear responsibility for success or failure on their own backs alone, yeah. um, but try to think sort of a little more communally about it. And it's striking that, that, that we talk about the base in this way because this is definitely much more accurate than the Labour right reading of what this base is oh because God, yeah. there's, there's this utterly bizarre 
labour right imaginary in which Trotskyism looms enormously large. I mean, it's it's I mean, it's as if the wildest fantasies of Alex Kalinikos have been fulfilled. And <laughs> That's really remarkable. It's, it's incredible. Like you read the things that they write about, you know, Trotsky's infiltration or whatever, and yeah. like not in our wildest dreams do we think <laughs> that you know that the Trotskys have ever been that big to to influence anything anything like an organisation this size. Like they they think that we're way stronger than we ever have been. Um, I don't know how that happened. That you know whether how they how they came to believe that we had this strength and we were just kind of hidden in all of the alleyways of society waiting for Corbyn to come along. <laughs> but I mean I wonder if it's I wonder if it's partly that that these people have never had to fight political battles since purging the party in you know under Kinnock and they've never had to do it since they've never had to have a real political conflict in the party and that's that's their last frame of reference and they can't think of anything new. Um one of the things about, and that's very, very clear actually in, in, in the book, in its sort of history of, of the changes in the Labour Party, is just how far the party's apparatus is sort of uh, geared to resist sort of uh, base-led popular resolution. It's certainly true in the, in the early 20th century, in the beginning, but early 20th century, that should the Labour Conference pass resolutions, the Parliamentary Party would just ignore them. Mm. Um, and Blairites in particular, I think, have always had a particular contempt for the base. And I wonder if it's naivete on, on the part of democratizers entering the party, slightly uh, green and, and wide-eyed, that, that, that the party can even be used to that end. Um, and so I wonder if there are risks to a Gramscian reading of this situation, because there is a real, I think, resurgence in the reading of Gramsci yeah. among these sort of young politico types. Um, and I wonder if it, it sort of hooks into that that sort of rather toxic legacy of Gramsci in England, which is a sort of long and very patient march through the institutions, really Dutchke, really, rather than Gramsci, but um, that never really gets anywhere, and that, but that, that gives up radicalism for the promise of political power and never really achieves it. How can that be fought against? Um, I mean, I, I, I think it's in some ways quite a productive thing that they've turned to Gramsci but yes absolutely I can see where you're going with this um, just recently um, we saw with this so-called anti-semitism controversy uh, where it, you know there were a number of cases of real anti-semitism a number of cases of people saying things that pushed in the a dangerous direction and a number of cases of just anti-Israel sentiment right and this was blown up into a huge paranoia and witch hunt and mobilized the apparatus of suspensions investigations and inquiry classic moral panic and witch hunt what was the role of um, people who inclined toward a slightly, um, if you like, Gramscian reading, people like John Landsman of Momentum um, and people of that orientation? I think, broadly speaking, they didn't want to have anything to say about it at all. And if anything, they tended to come out and say, no, no, we shouldn't use terms like Zionism because it might offend some people. Um, and there's this sort of sense that um, a Gramscianism can become... Uh, uh, you know, the sort of slow and long march through the institutions, all that uh, stuff, uh, and all the talk about forming coalitions can eventually mean um, doing what is necessary to uh, ensure that you get two or three decent people on the NEC. In other words, it can become very institutionalised. Mm. I mean, as I mentioned earlier, New, new Labour is a past master at a kind of bastardised uh, Gramscian language um, because they came out of um, a sort of um, a, a cultural interplay with Marxism today and Stuart Hall and all those lot. Um, and, you know, th there are some dangers in that. 
Um, that said, if they use it to think rigorously about what it would take to win, why is it that we're always uh, too few? Um, why is it uh, that, um, you know, uh, the... Uh, social movements are always based on some sort of coalition. How do you build a system of alliances and how do you do it in such a way that you're not um, instrumentalizing uh, sort of other groups or, uh, you know, not just condescending to them, but actually taking everybody's interests into account. Um, and, you know, if you think about it in those terms, I think there's a radicalized Gramscianism that could be useful in this context. Um, but yeah, I can absolutely see the traps you're referring to. I mean, it, this takes me back, and maybe this is a time to, to talk about some of the ideas actually that are circulating in, in the Corbynite left. Um, the, certainly, the, the references to Gramsci or the, the recourse to Gramsci remind me of a question that's actually posed in a Perry Anderson essay in New Left Review many, many, many years ago, um, when sort of there's some rethinking going on. Um, and he's thinking about, well, actually, how, how do you make serious political change in a country that isn't feudal, in a country that actually is a reasonably developed capitalist economy, mm. and in which actually probably the, the, the way civil society works is a bit different, in, in, in that actually you can conquer politics, but there are all these other institutions, and this is where I think some of the Corbynite complaints about the media have some base. Yeah. Um, there are all these other institutions which work to produce a consensus against you. And so that, that question of, of hegemony is, is really, and maybe it's one of the things that, that ought to be borne in mind by, by, by sort of Corbynite intellectuals, is about the projection of political will over, you know, over sort of, you know, in an alliance with, with people who are not perhaps your natural allies, but which can project beyond itself mm. a political programme. And, and that projection is conflictual and perhaps... Um, perhaps that has been missed, um, but so I, I think that's there as well, and I think I think it's important to bear in mind. This is an age of distrust in experts, and yeah. that's partly a legacy of the crisis. It's partly a legacy of people saying, actually, we've solved economics. We, 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 it's just a question of technical administration now. It's a crisis that has its roots in the Iraq War. So a crisis that produces this thing called anti-politics, which is a bit of a, a variable yeah. term. Um, how, I wonder, has this inflected the Corbyn base? Oh, okay. <laughs> um, well, I, I don't think that um, the starting... My starting point would be anti-politics, but um, you could say that there has been a growing disconnect from parliamentary politics. And we can see how that has worked out in, over the years. Um, I think 2001 was the first year, the first election in which the majority of non-voters said they did it deliberately, right? It wasn't just, oh, I couldn't make it or I couldn't be bothered. These were people who just said, what is the point? These people are not talking to me. Why am I going to talk to them? So they didn't turn out to vote. And, of course, there was a huge collapse in turnout in that election. I think for the first time it went to 59.5%. Um, by 2005 election, after the war in Iraq had begun and the occupation had started, started to disintegrate into terrible violence, um, the, um, I think it was almost all non-voters um, were not voting out of protest. And when, when they were asked why, often they would say things like, well, look, they... They, they're like, you know, 
Pepsi and Diet Coke, you know, they're basically the same kind of thing, they're the same product. So they're not really talking to me, they're offering me a false choice. And this plays into what Colin Crouch uh, calls uh, post-democracy, you know, the idea that essentially we have democratic institutions, but they've become um, something of a theatrical spectacle. Um, so basically we have debates where professionals have chosen in advance what the topics will be, what kinds of questions will be discussed, and it's all discussed within a very narrow margin, and we have uh, a voting system, but essentially once politicians get elected, they're not really accountable to electors so much as the state apparatuses and, of course, one another, um, because they, they've tended to form a kind of, if not a class, um, I think it's probably the wrong, wrong term for it, but a clique anyway. Um, and so there's been this detachment um, from parliamentary politics, and yet, of course, we've seen with the SNP, and now we've seen with Corbyn, that the party uh, form is not as dead as everybody likes to think. People will suddenly flock back to it mm. if they think there's something worth fighting for. It's just that it's a very weak uh, and fragile party form, not one sustained by any kind of regularized activism. As I've said, most of the people involved are passive. Um, ironically, um, that is exactly what the Blairite reforms of Labour were intended to achieve, to have a mass passive uh, base of members uh, who they assumed would anchor the party to the centre, more for them. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it's... Um, it, 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 you can call it anti-politics. Um, I would prefer to say that uh, there's a crisis in the representative link. The representative link has broken down. And since you were talking about the media and the way the Corbynites complain about the media, I would say that the media are part of this, you know, in terms of the representation of representation, the way in which the media uh, supposedly reflects back to us what we're thinking, what we're debating. Most people, or at least a very large and growing minority, look at that and think that's not what I'm thinking mm. that doesn't represent the way I feel about the world and if anything it's offensively biased you know hence the current um, uh, sort of excitement about the BBC and Laura Kunzberg I think there are two other things to add that in terms of um, the kind of role that the youth the spectre of the youth have played in the whole thing um, you know pre 2010 pre the student movement um, preoccupy there was this, you know, particularly on the right, but, you know, I think it made its way into certainly the Labour left. There was this, um, you know, this spectre of this, like, apolitical, apathetic youth that, you know, no longer cared about politics because they were consumerist and, you know, they'd bought the lie and, you know, we couldn't appeal to them anymore. <laughs> and and then the student movement happens and obviously, you know, there are hundreds of thousands of students that are furious and, you know, that it should have put it to rest. And instead, this new spectre has come up of this millennial who is this naive, you know idealistic dreamer, particularly in the US, but I think within, you know, the Corbynistas are being accused of this as well. Um, so the, the kind of turn on a dime of the youths being kind of demonised as these apathetic letdowns who, mm. you know, aren't, you know, don't appreciate their vote and aren't turning out for elections because they, you know, they don't know they were born and, you know, some these mythical privileged young people who, you know, are actually have the worst, you know, mm. the first time having worse living standards than their parents. Um them being turned into these, you know, these idealistic, you know, naive dreamers. Um, and they've obviously become Corbyn's core, you know, the, these people flooded into the Labour Party. The more people joined the Labour Party in, I think, immediately after Corbyn's election and in the run-up to it than are in the Conservative Party in total, yeah, yeah. which, you know, is worth remembering. Um, and and also that when when Corbyn was elected, there was this 
there is this vitriol against them that you know you're ruining our party you're you know you're coming in and you're you know you don't understand let the leave the adults to it we knew what we were doing you know we we had we had Miliband and he was he had his stone and we were all <laughs> we'd, we'd, we'd worked it out and now you're coming in and you're wrecking it and you're ruining it and we're never going to le- get elected on this basis mm-hmm. and so you've suddenly gone from you know asking young people to come out to suddenly blaming them for their own interest in politics yes. and the other thing to go back to is this thing we were saying about personalities I don't think it was just an anti-politics anti um, you know anti-representation or um, that the, there was no difference between the parties but there was no pe- difference between the people they were all they were all the same Blairites mm. essentially um, and then Corbyn comes along and the thing that everybody says about him is he's you know he's this really genuine really straightforward you know, you know what you're getting with Corbyn, and he's a really nice guy. Yeah, no I matter. Mean, like almost alarmingly so, right? And, yeah, you know, I, I kind of, yeah, I kind of is, want there to be some vice. Yeah, yeah. this really is disturbing. this is one of the things that we've said. You know that his his politics of kindness, you know, is is useful in a particular way in countering the kind of social sadism that has become so mm. rampant. But it's also limiting in that he can't go on the attack. Um, yeah. and I think. I've been asked so many times since Corbyn got elected if I'm going to join the Labour Party, as if, you know, suddenly my entire politics are going to change. Um, And there's this, I think, um, this misunderstanding that the only way that you can be of use to Corbyn, the only way to support him is to join and be part of this Labour apparatus, which is actually, you know, incredibly undemocratic and that you would be, your your, um, influence on that would be very limited anyway. That actually I think that we, those who support Corbyn's aims and ideals, on the outside can be much more useful in being the attack dogs, in you know being completely vicious in whatever outlets we have against the people that Corbyn feels he can't. Um, yeah, yeah. So I think you know, part, I think that's all part of the anti-politics. I mean, I think I think that's I think that's true. I I, I think there's a, a real difficulty here, and it's maybe actually also a difficulty in 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 some of the media strategy. I don't want to dwell on this too long um, from from the from Team Corbyn is that to recognise that actually you have you have to build something that isn't just your spokesman delivering something to mm. to journalists, but has outriders, has people who are at arm's length who can go and do things that you can't do uh, and who can actually fight uh, a rather broader battle in that term. I want to stick um, with ideas for a moment because it, it really struck me when you know I was reading John McDonald's speeches. Yeah, I mean, you know, intellectually, I find John McDonald a bit more interesting, actually, than Corbyn. He's a curious man. Um, sort of actually probably has a longer engagement with sort of ideas outside of the Labour Party, partly because, of course, he, uh, just as a constituent CMP, has grow he throw in his constituency, sort of long-term sort of eco-anarchisty project there. Uh, very, very supportive of it, in fact. Um but it struck me that some of his stuff, you know, this this panel that he's appointed, his rather futurist orientation, socialism with an iPad, was slightly cringy. Um, <laughs> plays into the, the ideas that are very popular, it seems, with the, the Corbyn base, and it's a pity Aaron hasn't arrived because he's much more into this than I am, which is this sort of automation, fully automated. Yeah, you know, I can feel for him, I'm into that too. <laughs> um, so I'm less convinced by these as sort of technical fixes to political problems. I think there's a political conflict over automation that's sometimes uh, subsumed within that, that motto. Um, but they seem the first steps to grasping a wider economic problem. And I guess the, the way I want to phrase it is thus, what do you do about Port Talbot 
And this has been really difficult, I think, for, for, for Labour to deal with. Um, you know, what do you do with these old industries? Um, how are you going to, to deal with them? Uh, can a synthesis of these ideas help? Uh, yeah, I mean, thank God I don't try to answer that question. Anymore, but I mean, I mean, I have some suspicions about this, and uh, I'll air those if you like. Um, I think, by and large, the idea of going back to a sort of corporatist settlement, propping up lame dunk enterprises uh, in the hope of making them competitive on capitalist terms, that's not going to work. Um, but there's something to be said for, um, in some instances, conversion. And in some some cases, it would just be uh, useful to have uh, intervention to stop job losses being such an utter catastrophe and to enable transition to other forms of employment and to support new forms of employment, mm. to support green employment, for example, investment in green jobs. I mean, it's, it's not a question of one specific thing, like how do we intervene in Port Talbot now? It's a question of the wider policy mix. If you haven't got a policy mix in place that enables you to intervene and to support jobs and uh, to, uh, all the rest of it, um, then, you know, it's not going to work. The other thing, of course, is that, um, to my knowledge, um, there hasn't really been uh, a successful Keynesian program ever uh, in the United Kingdom or anywhere. Um, and um, I think that um, we certainly can't bank on the idea of going back to, you know, 1945, you know, that glorious moment when everybody was being rationed and had rickets and everything. Um, but, you know, we can't go back to that time um, and we can't, we can't wish capitalism into a more healthy sort of phase so that it can sustain uh, a big welfare state. Um, there's not going to be um, any gain without some sort of sacrifice and loss. Somebody's going to have to take a hit. Hopefully, by and large, it'll be the rich. But some of it might have to come out of the pockets of the middle classes, and I hope they're listening. <laughs> I imagine they probably are, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Way to alienate all of the listeners. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, I, think this is, I think this is good, and I, but, I mean, I, I wonder... I, wonder the, I mean, these, these all seem like... You know, it, it, I mean, it's interesting to me because there is a there's a bit of heresy hunting that goes on with the the, the sort of Corbynite base, which is, you know, abandonment of traditional socialist programs, mm. and and um, I, I is that a good thing? The abandonment of the traditional mm. socialist program. Um, I mean, I think rethinking is always good. Mm. I think you know, not relying on nostrums that haven't worked ever in the past is yeah is is always a good thing. Um, I think. I think what Corbyn's doing is really smart. I think he is playing the long game. I think he's recruiting some really smart... And, and McDonnell, obviously, who I agree, is clearly the more interesting of the two of them, as much as I, you know, I'm very much on Corbyn's side, just to be clear. Um, <laughs> the, you know, the recruiting of these heterodox economists who have been completely shut out of, you know, academic um, discourse, basically, completely written out of courses. You know, there is no yeah. economics taught in universities now that isn't, precisely what we have that is neoliberalism um so you know bringing in and doing these like free economics talks um open to the public and engaging people in talking about the economy as if it's something that you can actually change that mm. you know isn't just you know tinkering here and there with this or that tax band um so i think i think they know that they can't rely on nostrums um i have i have some faith in what they're you know what they think they're doing i think um corbyn and mcdonald have got their eye on the long game much more so than a lot of their supporters, I think. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I wonder about this though, which is, uh, I mean, I have my reservations. And it's, my reservations are those te are like technical political ones. It just really frustrates me. Hmm. You know, it's like, you know, 
know what a print deadline is. I mean, it's really, really, you know, <laughs> really obsessed with that. I, I, I am, I am, because you know, I'm, partly because, partly because I think, I think media matters. Um, I don't like most journalists. Um, that's that's a completely reasonable position, I think. Um, I, I think, and I don't think most journalists like most journalists either. Um, I. <laughs> You know, it would be one thing if they if they weren't good at standard Westminster politics, but there were a really really strong series of social movements or and a widespread agonistic sort of political contestation in society that they're riding the back of and can reshape Westminster to their will. But to be honest, a lot of this just looks like a little bit of incompetence, and it's it's mm. partly you know it's partly that 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 they're embattled within the party and they have very few people to choose from. Um, but part of it, I think, is the legacy of some of those old socialist groupings, like sort of socialist action, which we're all supposed to think doesn't exist, but does. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, who who are that that sort of kind of Ken Livingston style? I mean, you know, why a press officer hadn't locked Ken Livingston in a basement <laughs> somewhere is beyond me. Because, because this stuff does matter, actually, and it, it matters maybe more in terms of sort of wider strategy and in terms of you know. So I mean, we said at the top of the show. Uh, about what would happen in 2020. I mean, fingers crossed, <laughs> he makes it to 2020. I think actually, probably Corbyn or someone like Corbyn will be leading the party in 2020. I can't see mm. a way to unseat him. Um, and I, th I think probably the sort of Millibandite faction with their sort of David Miliband king over the water, like let's have him elected in tooting. This is a strategy. Certainly, this is what they want. Yeah. Um, th that that isn't going to happen. Um, I mean that 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 is fantasy, um, but I, I wonder, you know, you know, how do you build? And I guess this is actually the the final chapter of the book is what the prospects for Corbyn are. It's a good time to come to talk about it. Um, doesn't look like he's really succeeding in building a coalition beyond the mm. base, an electoral coalition. Um, is there a way to do that within the conventional frame of, of Westminster politics for him? Well, I mean, he should certainly, I agree with you, try to uh, achieve a certain baseline of competence in those matters. Um, but he has to choose as well because, I mean, let's, let's take the media, right? Um, where Corbyn succeeded with the media was not when he just ignores them, but rather he um, deploys through social media and uh, sort of a, a range of supportive Twitter accounts and Facebook accounts and all the rest of it, people who really aren't part of the campaign, but, you know, um, they're supporting. Well, they basically engage in a sort of antagonistic relationship with the media. They engage with it uh, and they subvert it. So they say, oh, well, the media is saying this about Corbyn. We're going to challenge that and we're going to say what really happened. Or they would turn a negative into a positive. So they're saying so he's some wild, crazy leftist. Yeah, that's exactly what he is. And we've got pictures to prove it. <laughs> you know. So, I mean, essentially that was very effective because their Facebook account reached uh, up to, I mean, at the moment, I think it reaches 11 million mm. people. 57% of Corbyn voters in the end uh, relied upon social media. I don't think that's totally wise, but, I mean, it's understandable. Um, but the point is that the, the mainstream media, um, their monopoly on um, ideological meaning um, is breaking down, mm. and it's not just breaking down because of social media, but social media is organising it in a particular way. So if you have, if you're able to use these resources, uh, why don't you do so? And I think it's a, a, a pity that Corbyn hasn't got a huge, like Sanders does, hasn't got a huge social media team to back up um, and uh, to bolster his uh, his media efforts. Um, I think in terms of building, um, you're right; he's not building a, a vast coalition. Um, he's struggling constantly, day in, day out, against 
contrived controversies. Um, however, um, what we've seen, I give him credit for this, is he's quite good at patiently waiting and probing on certain issues that he knows the Tories are weak on. It's just because he knows the Conservatives are actually weaker than they look. Um, so he waits for an issue to come along, like uh, personal independence payments, like uh, uh, welfare, uh, what was it, uh, working family tax credits, like the Saudi prisons deal, like forced academisation. He knows the Tories are divided. He knows that, um, uh, and Europe, of course, is at the heart of that. But so... All he has to do is oppose in a way that no other Labour leader would have done. Let's be clear mm. about that. Um, they would have been triangulating. They would have yes, been looking. Yes. Or, God help us all, um, abstaining. Yeah. Or doing a sort of Nicola Murray style thing, like we agree with the government <laughs> because we are in concordance <laughs> with the people. You know, something like that. Yeah. So he's, he's achieved something. And what we saw was a gradual, mild, gen, gentle shift upwards in Labour's share of the vote from about 30 to 34%. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's nowhere near enough. And uh, mm. certainly the performance in the local elections, while not catastrophic, was nowhere near good enough. How can they break out of this sort of slow incremental growth? Well, maybe there's a warning against any kind of voluntarism here. Maybe it's just not within our reach to force the situation. Mm. Maybe there is a limit to what Corbynism uh, can achieve and can appeal to. Maybe he should not. Um, I mean, it's it's sacrilege in the Labour Party to say this like maybe he should just not worry too much about winning the next election right and I know that I mean uh, Labour is a constitutionalist and electoralist party to say that is you know to automatically discredit yourself but um, it seems to me that that election is not going to be won certainly not going to be won on traditional grounds so um uh, what, what's the alternative? Well, focus on other ways of wielding power. The opposition in Parliament is good. Building up social movements where you can, intervening to support the junior doctors, all that sort of stuff is good. Um, and trying to support the emergence of a wider grassroots left, all that's, um, you know, viable. But to do that, you have to try and shift the emphasis away from traditional news management mm. and traditional party political organising within Parliament. Um, and that's a tension right at the core of the Corbyn project, and it may be a fatal tension. Yeah, I mean, it's very, it's very difficult. I mean, I, I agree there's been some good opposition in Parliament. A lot of the really effective stuff has actually been in the Lords, yeah. oddly enough. Yeah. Um, and, it's a, and it's a really odd situation for someone on the left to say, well, actually, this um, totally undemocratic yeah. uh, nightmare of a, 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 a ruling body has been, you know... Happen, happens to have been good for us. I mean, the Lords is rather like a sort of black box. You, know, you can't you, what goes in and what comes out. I mean, who knows? How <laughs> um, you know, they, they are they are unpredictable, partly because they have no accountability at all. It's interesting you mention defeat and how to make defeat work for you. It's one of the the in really interesting parts of the conclusion of the book is exactly how yeah. to approach defeat and what defeat means. Because um, the left is used to thinking about defeat also used to I'm passing sure it off as, as something else it's used um, to experiencing yeah. <laughs> defeat it's not used to thinking about yeah, it yeah <laughs> yeah yeah i think i think you're right um jem gilbert suggests and um, yeah. he is probably one of the most interesting thinkers on what used to be called the soft left of the party yeah. um he suggests well maybe the offer that corbyn has to make is that we're going to lose the next election but this is a 10-year thing this is uh we are we're going to have to do the things that actually allow you to win elections, which is build our own media, which is to uh, build really thriving uh, local political bodies. And we can promise you that in 10 years' time, we will win and we will institute 
a totally new politics, you know, a real new social settlement. Is that offer enough to the centre of the party? You're never going to convince a Blairite. But can that offer be made to the centre of the party in such a way that they'll accept it? And what else does it entail accepting? I mean, one thing we haven't talked about is the relationship between the centre of the party and local councils, local councils yeah. who behave utterly abominably. We're sitting in Southwark. Southwark uh, is a notoriously disgusting Labour council. Its leader, Peter John, uh, particularly revolting. Um, is that really where we're going? I don't think so. Um, I, I think that the centre is willing to put up with Corbyn um, for the time being because they have to um, mm. and they don't have an alternative. I mean, after all, the right had three candidates in the election. <laughs> they couldn't even get one bland <laughs> candidate between them. Um, so they don't have the uh, ideas, the energy, the initiative. Uh, they're not going to be able to do it. But um, they're not going to accept a, a sort of offer either um, because they don't think in those terms. Mm. I think the idea of, for them of an ambitious, far-reaching project of transformation is not what they're in it for. Um, they certainly, um, I think, uh, from the centre of the party, you could talk about social justice, they believe in all sorts of um, sort of policies to mitigate poverty, um, but they're broadly, you know, they broadly accept the terrain of neoliberalism, they accept the terrain of market-based solutions, um, and it's about uh, mitigating the worst aspects, of, uh, effects and aspects of that, and of course, uh, for some of them, representing uh, their union uh, mm. within Parliament and sort of giving a sort of broadly laborist politics. So um, in terms of a transformative politics uh, of the kind that Jeremy Gilbert wants to uh, support, um, I think that the soft left and the hard left of the Labour Party are the, are the constituency for that, and that's why they need to be open to reaching out beyond the Labour Party, mm. far beyond it. I mean, one of the things we, we haven't really talked about and don't have time now is, is some of the cleavages here, which, is, which are, are less examined, urban versus rural, really difficult one for actually the Labour Party to get their heads around, also much of the left. Um, so southeast versus the rest of England, that's a hugely important one, cosmopolitan versus traditional. And Britain itself, which looks yeah. like it's still in its sickbed and might still expire in the course of the next decade. Mm. Um, that, I think, is, is something that will be used against them in an electoral campaign. Going to have to overleap that, unfortunately. Um, what I'm going to ask you in closing is, um, much of our audience are the kind of people who think, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm on board with the Corbyn thing, I'm not sure... Not sure it's really going in the way that that, that I would want it to go. What are, what are the best things that someone like that can be doing? What, should they join the Labour Party? Do you think should they be doing something else? I mean, I think that's purely a tactical judgment. I wouldn't join the Labour Party, mm -hmm. but then after everything I've said, they wouldn't have me. <laughs> I mean, don't forget, yeah, I, I yeah. you know, I mean, they wouldn't take people who have been politically sort of uh, polyamorous enough to have voted for the SNP or the Liberals, <laughs> for God's sake. Um, so anyway, um, no, I don't necessarily think you have to join the Labour Party to be effective. I think uh, we need to uh, marshal our forces, keep our powder dry. Uh, we don't have to be constantly active. We don't have to be constantly building new projects. I think one of the problems is we're constantly engaging in these dynamic, exciting new projects that go nowhere. We don't always have to do that. We can do that where there's a sufficient uh, uh, sort of opportunity and resources and all that fits together. But in the meantime, we can do, be doing a, n a number of things. One is uh, we can be rethinking. Um, thinking is a good thing. Um, and two, we can be trying to um, collaboratively develop the ideas upon which we will um, reconstitute something like a viable, habitable left. 
And in that context, it would be a good idea if we learned the virtues, uh, not, not you know, particular to the left of uh, humility and generosity in interpreting one another, which, um, you know, and shed the old sort of habits yes. of sectarianism and uh, denunciation. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think, you know, some humility, go along to these debates with an open mind, get involved in these, you know, the events that they're holding, go and talk about economics and get your head around it all, because that's also something the left has failed to do a mm. lot. Um, you know, the the problem starts if they win the 2020 election, and mm. that needs to be when we've got our act together. Um, and also, obviously, if you're not already, join your union and get involved in that. Okay, long-term plan then. Uh, thanks very much for joining us, Richard, Rosie. We'll be back same time, same place next week. Thanks.